next weekend, North Stonington Bible Church is having a Bible conference beginning Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m. They'll have a session Saturday morning and a second one Saturday evening at 7.30. Sunday morning they have sessions, but we'll be here, not there. There was a point of confusion on that the last hour. And even though we have done joint conferences with them in the past and will likely do so in the future, on Sunday morning we do continue to have our, our own services. The speaker is uh, Dr. Ron Merriman, who is from Duluth Bible Church, and he will be speaking on issues related to the millennium. So he's speaking on prophecy-related issues, and that will be important and probably a good uh, primer for the conference that we're going to hold beginning on June 30th, our 4th of July prophecy conference, when uh, Dr. Tommy Ice will be here from the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group. And so you need to make plans. That will be on Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night from 7.30 to 8.30. Friday night, that will be followed by a question-answer session. We may do something else in terms of getting together, having some sort of meal or something down here on Saturday, and then the two sessions on that Sunday morning. So be sure to put that in your calendar and plan accordingly. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared in fellowship and under the filling of the Holy Spirit. We do that through the confession of sin, which is a private matter between you and God the Father. It is part of our priesthood, as every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a royal priest unto God, and as part of our privilege, we confess our sins directly to Him. It's no one else's business. And as we confess our sins, we know that He forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That includes sins we've forgotten about, sins we did not know we committed but did not know were sins. We know that we are instantly cleansed and forgiven, and God separates our sins as far from us as the East is from the West, and He remembers those sins no more. Why? Because they were paid for completely by Jesus Christ on the cross, so that sin is no longer an issue. Jesus Christ paid the price for every sin, past, present, and future. Every sin in human history is completely paid for. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. So we can recover from any personal sin after salvation simply through admission or acknowledgement of sin and privacy to God the Father. So we have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have together as a body of believers to come before you and to bring our prayers, our petitions, our thanksgiving to you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have now to gather together 
the freedoms that we have in this country to assemble together for the study of your word. Because nothing is more important to us than your will, and you have revealed your will to us objectively and precisely and specifically in your word. So, Father, now as we take time to study your word and to analyze it, help us to understand these things and see how they apply to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this week, some unnamed person in the congregation fired me a little email that I thought would was somehow illuminating this morning. So, these are suggestions for what they call Second Amendment bumper stickers. An unarmed man, no, an armed man is a citizen. An unarmed man is a subject. Come on, you have to think a little bit. I know it's not that early in the morning. A gun in the hand is better than a cop on the phone. If guns are outlawed, can we use swords? If guns cause crime, then pencils cause misspelled words. The Second Amendment is in place in case they ignore the others. 64,999,987 firearms owners killed no one today. Guns have two enemies, rust and politicians. You don't shoot to kill, you shoot to stay alive. Now, some of you may be surprised at this. You know, we live in an era when, unfortunately, the pusillanimous pronouncements of pacifistic pastors have caused people to think that if you're a Christian, you don't want to kill anybody. But that's because we have such pathetic translations of the Old Testament that translate in the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not kill. The Hebrew is very precise. In fact, there's over ten different words for killing in the Old Testament. And some of them have to do with killing in combat. That's not a word that's used in the Ten Commandments. Others are killing in self-defense. Those words aren't used in the Ten Commandments. The word that is used is ratzach, which means to take a life criminally, what we would call homicide. So an accurate translation is, thou shalt not commit homicide. But it doesn't say anything. In fact, the Ten Commandments do support private ownership of property, and therefore the right to protect that property, to protect your own life, and to shoot to kill in the process. So uh, the Second Amendment is something that should be um, supported by all Bible-believing Christians. Here's a couple of more. Criminals love gun control. It makes their job safer. <laughs> 911. I like this one. 911. Government sponsored dial a prayer. <laughs> gun control is using both hands. And then one that is just a little too close to the truth to be humorous. If the first to go is the second amendment, the second to go is the first amendment. Now, we can enjoy, all enjoy the humor that is expressed in those little bumper stickers, but 
Unfortunately, as we all know, with the events that have taken place in the last few uh, months, and even in the last couple of years with some of the shootings that have taken place, that the whole issue of gun control and Second Amendment rights and uh, private ownership of firearms is coming under serious, serious attack. And people want to, I've heard a number of people say that we perhaps should rescind the Second Amendment, that we no longer live in an era where people need to have firearms to hunt and to shoot and things like that. And that totally misses the point because the point of the Second Amendment was to recognize that the greatest deterrent to tyranny is an armed citizenry. The point of the First Amendment was protection against tyrannical government, not the right to own a 22 so you could go out and go hunting. Now, today we live in a time, unfortunately, when Americans are losing their concept of freedom. Over the last several months, I've heard two or three times on the news surveys that have begun with these words. In a recent survey, many Americans are willing to give up at least some of their freedom in order to get something. Each time it was something different. In a recent survey, many Americans are willing to give up at least some of their freedom. This shows a lack of capacity for freedom among the American population. It reveals a failure to understand freedom and its causes and conditions, a lack of comprehension about the dynamics of a free society and the historical causes of that free society. Whenever a people lose their craving, their lust for freedom, tyranny lurks around the corner. The kind of thinking that produced our Constitution and the Bill of Rights is becoming more and more foreign to the thinking of the average American. Instead of freedom, they want security. Instead of personal responsibility, they want the government to assume responsibility. Instead of spiritual solutions based on Bible doctrine, they want political solutions derived from crusader arrogance, whether you're talking about the political left or the political right. Remember, when a nation legislates the Bible out of the public marketplace of ideas, legislation will no longer be able to solve the problems of that nation we will be left wondering how in the world did we get in a mess like this. Now, when I say legislating the Bible out of the public marketplace of ideas, I don't mean to imply that the Bible should be legislated into the public marketplace of ideas. That's just as wrong. What I mean is that when we are engaged in any kind of public discussion and investigation of values, and we're asking a question, what is wrong with our society or what's wrong with our culture? If we exclude from the outset the Bible as a source of valid information, then we are doomed to collapse internally. It reveals that we are awash in moral relativism and subjectivism. We're emotionally reacting to problems instead of intellectually discussing the issues with all the facts because from the beginning we're excluding a vital source of facts and information And we have lost the solid foundation and an objective source of values. What we see is moral relativism and situational ethics gone to seed today. 
what we see is a culture that is producing people who no longer have an anchor. And when they start talking about values, it's whose values. One day it's one set and the next day it's another because there's no objective standard because we have excluded that. The result will be a slow, inevitable implosion of society. Now, the interesting thing is the same situation existed in Israel in the first century when our Lord walked on the earth. At that time, the Jews were under divine discipline for their rejection of God in favor of the legalism and ritualism of the Pharisees. So God disciplined them. They were under the control and domination of SPQR, Senatus Populusque Romanus, which means the Senate and the people of Rome. And they chafed under the control of the Roman Empire. The purpose for God's discipline was to get the people to refocus on the spiritual solution of grace and dependence upon God, as described in the Old Testament, and to reject religion. You see, religion is the greatest tool of Satan, because religion says that man by man's efforts can gain the approval of God. But the Bible says man by man's efforts can do nothing for God's approval. God has to do everything, and man simply accepts it by, by faith. You see, what people don't like in their arrogance is that God says, you can do nothing, I have to do it all for you, it's a free gift, just take it. Salvation is a free gift. Anyone who comes to the waters, come, take, drink freely. It's free, it's at no cost. No cost to us. It costs Jesus Christ everything. Now, instead of relying upon God's grace solution and dependence upon God and applying the principles and policies of God in the Old Testament, the Jews rejected the Messiah in their presence and they went for a political solution instead of a spiritual solution. They wanted a Messiah to deliver them politically from Rome and not a spiritual Messiah who would first deliver them from the bondage to sin, which was the root of their political bondage. You see, until we deal with the ultimate source of bondage and slavery, we can't have true freedom. This is demonstrated historically that a people do, who do not deal with the spiritual issues first, as defined by Scripture, never have the capacity for freedom. In fact, the only societies in all of human history that have exhibited an advanced concept of freedom are those that have at their foundation and their founding fathers have been seriously impacted by biblical truth. And that is exhibited mostly by 19th century Britain and 20th century, 19th and 20th century uh, United States of America. You see, the root cause of all bondage is not politics. It's not economics. It's spiritual. When God created the first man, Adam, and gave him a wife, Eve. He placed them in the garden, and there was a tree. And on that tree was fruit. And God said, I have provided everything you will need in life. You have maximum freedom. And freedom is not freedom from authority. It's freedom to live under the authority of God and to fulfill their, their purpose in life. And they had maximum happiness, and everything was provided. But there was one prohibition. And God said, you cannot eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, that's not a great sin, is it, to eat something? But that's what it was. It was a literal tree and a literal piece of fruit. <clears throat> the issue was, are you going to obey God, or are you going to try to be the final authority for everything in life? 
this is the issue. Is man going to set man up as the ultimate authority in life, or is God going to be the ultimate authority and definer of reality? This is a problem of the crowd in Jesus' day. They wanted to set the agenda themselves. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they violated the divine prohibition, they died spiritually. They were separated from God and they acquired a sin nature and they became enslaved to sin. They were in bondage to that sin nature and all other bondage in the human experience, political, economic, social, whatever, is a consequence of the fact that we are enslaved spiritually. And until the spiritual solution is resolved, there can be no resolution of the political, economic, or social slavery. And it is only when you have a recognition of the spiritual dynamics involved that you're able to develop a capacity to appreciate and to enjoy freedom and personal responsibility. And in two cases that we're going to see, one, the case of the Jews in the first century, and another in terms of the Exodus generation, they failed to understand and appreciate the spiritual dynamics of freedom, so they couldn't handle the responsibilities that came with freedom. And one generation, the Exodus generation, had to die in the wilderness and not enter the promised land because they would not accept God's plan and God's agenda. And the first century believers were ultimately taken out and they died at Masada in 70 A.D. when God disciplined and destroyed the nation Israel under the Roman armies. Why? Because they rejected the spiritual solution in arrogance. And arrogance can manifest itself in many different ways. They had rejected God and His plan. They substituted their own agenda. See, this is man's problem. Man wants to define and set the agenda as against God who said, this is my plan, my program, my universe, I set the rules. Man wants to think that he can redefine the rules. They look for a religious solution in legalism, the legalism of the Pharisees. They look for a solution in the external morality of the Pharisees, and that was just as bankrupt as the empty liberal theology of the Sadducees. But no matter whether they were on the religious left or religious right, the political left or the political right, they were all seeking a political solution to their problems. So that when Jesus came along, they didn't want to accept what he said spiritually. They wanted to make him the king. Now, our problem today reveals the same kind of crisis in the soul. The crisis that we're facing is not a crisis of guns or gun ownership or, or violence. It's not a crisis of the media. It's not a crisis of the family. It's not a crisis of education. It's not a crisis of computer games. It's not a crisis of violent entertainment. It is a systemic cultural crisis that is at the root of all of those others. And that systemic cultural crisis is a rejection of the gospel and a rejection of the authority and the plan of God. And if this nation does not turn around and reverse course, then we will find ourselves in the same identical trap as the Jews in the first century. We want God to solve our problems our way. We want to tell Him what's right and what our problem is. We want to define the problem on our own 
and come up with our own solution. And God says, I'm the one who defines the problem. The problem is sin. And I'm the one who defines the solution. And I provide the solution. I provide it in grace. All you have to do is accept it. This is the same situation Jesus faced in the first century. Let's review where we are in John 6. First of all, Jesus performed the first miracle when he fed the 5,000. Now, the, Jewish, the Jews reacted to this, and their response is illuminating. Wow, what a welfare system. This guy can feed 5,000. Remember, there were at least 15,000 in the crowd. That was only 5,000 men. If he can feed us like this, we can make him king. See, they immediately rejected the spiritual implications. Jesus fed the 5,000 to show that he was God, and he had the ability to take care of every need in our lives. And they said, if this guy can feed us physically, he can do it forever. What a welfare system. Let's make him king. And the scripture is interesting because it says that they wanted to take him by force. See, that's the human autonomy. We want to make God do it our way. We don't want to submit to God. It's that authority issue, my way or God's way. So Jesus' first sign, he fed the 5,000. The second sign was he walked on the water. He did that privately with the disciples. as they, On their way back to Capernaum, he walked on the water and he stilled the storm. And when the crowd found out about it, now they really wanted to make him king. Because if he could still the storm, if he could walk on the water, then he could defeat the legions of Caesar. So here was the great, the man. If we can just get him to be king, then we can have a political solution to our bondage to the Roman Empire. You see, their focus is on the political, the physical solution, and not on the spiritual realities. They wanted a king, they wanted to take him by force no matter what he wanted. No matter, it didn't matter what God's agenda was. The only thing that mattered was their arrogant agenda. Now, Jesus knew that the crowd was negative. He knew that they had already rejected God. And instead of wanting to worship God, they were worshiping God through religion. And God rejects religion. Remember, religion is man by man's efforts trying to gain the approval of God. God hates religion. Religion is the, Satan's greatest tool for deceiving and distracting mankind because religion puts the emphasis on man's works and man's efforts. But rebellious man always thinks that somehow he's going to do something to impress God, that he'll impress God with his good works, that he will impress God with his sincerity, that he will impress God <clears throat> with his religious activity. But remember, sincerity is not the issue. This is one of Satan's greatest lies and deceives so many people. How many people do we talk to that say, well, they were so sincere? How could God reject them because they're so nice, they're so wonderful, they're so sincere? But see, God is only impressed with his plan, not our plan. God is only impressed with truth, not lies, not error. Remember, a couple of illustrations. It doesn't matter how sincerely you believe you are driving 20 miles an hour in a speed limit. If that is a school zone and you're driving 30 instead of 20, then you're just not going to be able to stop in time when that child steps out in front of you doesn't matter how sincere you are. No matter how sincerely you believed the rifle wasn't loaded, the person is just as dead. You see, in everyday life, we realize that sincerity isn't the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is truth and reality. But when it comes to spiritual things, we want to deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow God is impressed with our sincerity. But God is only impressed with what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he died as our substitute, and he's only impressed 
with whether or not we're willing to accept that by faith alone, in Christ alone, because God said there is only one way into heaven. Now, man thinks that that's arrogance. Man thinks that the biblical claim to exclusivity, the Christian claim that there is one and only one way to God, and that's through faith alone in Christ alone, is the height of arrogance. And when Jesus makes that claim to the masses in John 6, boy, do they react just like every arrogant person reacts. We don't like that. We want to think that somehow we can do something to contribute to the process. And God says, if you contribute anything, it destroys it, so let me do it all. I've done it all. I paid the price in full. That's why when Jesus died, the last thing he said before he died physically was, it is finished. It's paid for in full. There's nothing more you can do. Now, when he starts making this claim to exclusivity in front of the crowds in John 6, they become more and more uncomfortable. They begin to react. They say, how can he say that? How can he say he's the only way? How can he claim to be the Messiah? We know his parents. We've known him since he was a kid. Who in the world does he think he is? How arrogant is he? Let's follow the flow of the chapter. He fed the 5,000 to illustrate his ability as Messiah to feed them spiritually. And their response was they wanted to take him by force. Then he walked on the water and controlled the storm. And when they heard about it, it intensified their desire to make him Caesar or make him the king so that he could defeat Caesar. He addressed this issue and their wrong response in verse 27. He said, don't put the priority on temporal, temporary, physical issues in life, but put the priority on permanent, eternal realities as defined by God. He said, accept as a gift eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. You don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. It's not a free gift that you have to come and listen to some sales pitch about. It's not a free gift that comes with hidden strings. It is a free gift. You do nothing to earn it or deserve it. But the crowd rejected that grace solution, and they opted for works. They said, tell us the works of God that we can do so that we can work the works of God. And Jesus said, the only work of God you need to do is believe in Him whom God sent. That's it. That's the key word. Remember the purpose for the Gospel of John. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He didn't say these are written that you might believe and go to church. He didn't say that you might believe and participate in religious activities. He didn't say these are written that you might believe and live a good moral life and impress other people with your goodness. He said, pure and simple, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing faith alone, you might have life in His name. So Jesus said the issue is, believe in Him who God sent. You don't do anything. I'm going to do it all. But the crowd rejected that, and having seen Him feed the 5,000, having heard him walk, about Him walking on the water, they then in their arrogant stupidity, because remember, the person who is negative, the person who has rejected the gospel, listen to this, the person who rejected the gospel can't be convinced by evidence. He's already done these incredible works. Isn't this fantastic? And they say, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Jesus said, in answer to that, he said, I am the bread from heaven. I am the one who has come down from heaven. And again, the crowd rejects his claim to be from God, to be from heaven and be the source of eternal life. 
The crowd rejected that, and then Jesus goes on to explain and to intensify the issue. He wants to make it real clear to this crowd that the problem is right here. The problem is that they have an agenda, and it's not God's plan. They want to assert their authority and do it their way over against the authority of God. And he just wants to make this very clear, so each time they react... He makes his statement sound a little more abrasive. They sound very abrasive. He wants to make it clear. They're hiding behind, like so many of us do, hide behind just this surface view of goodness. That, yeah, oh yeah, I really believe that, and we don't. Well, he wants to bring it all out in the open, and he wants to remove that veneer of religiosity and make it clear to one and all that they are rejecting him as the Messiah. So he goes on and he makes it clear and he says statements like, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. He's emphasizing divine authority over against their authority. He then says, He who believes has eternal life. Once again, the issue is faith. It's not works. He says, I am the bread of life. Then I am the living bread. Then the bread that I shall give is my flesh. See how he's pushing it? Now he's saying, The bread is my flesh. And then he says, the flesh is my life. And then he says, I give my life as a substitute for the sins of the world. Jesus could not be more clear. He makes it so clear that they understand what he's saying. And they're sitting there saying, he can't mean that. He can't mean that we have to accept him. That can't be right. And they react more and more. And the text says that they grumble and they complain And they argue among themselves. You see, they're not interested in what God says. They're interested in their own agenda. To religion, they say yes, but to God, they say no. To a political solution, they say yes, but to God, they say no. To freedom from Rome, they say yes, but to a spiritual freedom, they say no. So now Jesus, when we get to verse 51 of John 6, Jesus is going to really turn up the heat. He's going to make sure they understand what the dynamics are. What he says is so, it's amazing. We get this view of the sweet, little, meek, and mild Jesus. And Jesus turns the heat up. And what he says, if it's taken literally, which is how they react to it, is so abrasive and so offensive to the Jewish mentality that they just react and start bouncing off the walls. But before we get there, we have to back up a minute and review the doctrine of interpretation. The doctrine of interpretation. This is so important because people today just have trouble understanding so many things in the Scriptures. So let's review this. The doctrine of interpretation. What does it mean to interpret the Scriptures? First point, definition. Interpretation is the science and art of analyzing a text, whether it's a verbal communication or a written communication. It's the science and art of analyzing a text in order to understand the meaning the author intended to convey to the reader. The science and art of analyzing a text in order to understand the meaning the author intended to convey to the reader. It's not, what does it mean to me? It's what does the author intend to convey to the reader. Let me illustrate that. Imagine now, for some of you guys, this will be tough, but imagine you're a 19-year-old girl, and you just got email or a letter from your boyfriend. 
Dear Mary. Now, that girl's going to say, what does he mean by dear? Is he just doing that because that's the way you write a letter? Or does he mean something more? And then as she reads the letter, she looks at every word. She weighs every phrase. She calls up her girlfriends for two or three hours on the phone. She says, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by that? Why did he say this way? Taking apart every phrase, every word, trying to find every sense of meaning. Because she knows it doesn't matter what meaning she assigns to it. What matters is the question she's asking. What did he mean by this? And then he comes to the end and he says, love so and so. And she says, well, what does he mean by that? Does he just mean love in Christ? Does he just mean I love you like I love everybody else in the world? Or does he have something more in mind? What's really going on here? We live in a world when, in, as a result of Kantian epistemology, Immanuel Kant was a, a philosopher at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, and he, in his epistemological system, shifted the center of absolutes from out there and objective reality to inside. According to Kant, you couldn't know things in themselves. You could only know things as you perceive them. Therefore, you define reality. That was exemplified in the new Star Wars movie. Remember, you define reality by what you think, (laughs) says the Jedi Knight to his young apprentice. Now, that's Kantian epistemology. doesn't matter what the other person meant. What matters is the meaning you assign to it. And that has come to fruition in what we call postmodernist hermeneutics today, where it doesn't matter at all what the writer of the document said. What matters is the meaning you assign to it. Now, if you think this doesn't have much relevance to you, it does. Because this is the issue in the whole debate over the Constitution. Because today people are saying it doesn't matter what the framers of the Constitution meant. It doesn't matter what the Founding Fathers meant. That was a different world. That was 200 years ago. Golly, we change. People are different. Society is different. What matters is how the Constitution is read today. It's a shifting, changing, living, breathing document. And it has new meanings for today that they couldn't envision. Well, as soon as you do that, you rip it out of any kind of bedrock stability and objectivity. And it becomes purely uh, unstable and flexible. And it can mean anything to anybody at any time. But I challenge you, you can't interpret the Constitution that way unless... You can interpret the tax code that way. If the Constitution is a fluid, flexible document and it doesn't matter what the writers meant, then it doesn't matter what the IRS means either. I can make that tax code mean whatever I want it to. You see, the issue in interpretation is what did the author intend to communicate? not what the reader would like for it to say. Hermeneutics is the technical term. It's from the Greek word hermeneia, which means to interpret, explain, clarify, elucidate, and explicate the meaning of the author so the reader can accurately understand and apply what has been said. Point number two, interpretation of the Bible is based on what's called the historical grammatical principle of interpretation. This emphasizes a study of the original languages, in terms of linguistics and grammar, in terms of its historical context, 
the literary context, whether it's poetry or whatever, the plain or, and emphasizes the plain or normal sense of the text. Now, this was the standard method of hermeneutics or interpretation used in the early church up until about the middle to the end of the 3rd century A.D., when a man named Origen, because he was imbued with a Neoplatonic philosophy, introduced an allegorical method of interpretation. And that basically almost destroyed theology in the Middle Ages. Once you introduce allegory, the literal meaning is irrelevant, and it can just mean whatever you want it to mean. And once again, subjectivity is introduced. So allegorical interpretation reigned through the Middle Ages until, it was, until literal historical grammatical interpretation was restored with the Reformation. Point number three. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek. The New Testament in Koine Greek, most of the Old Testament in Hebrew, some in Aramaic. And to correctly understand what the Bible says, we must understand it in the original languages. Any of you who know more than one language know that any time there is translation, you lose something in the translation. And Bible translations into the English are no exception. In fact, we saw an example of it Sunday night in James 2.24 that we saw that the word alone in that passage in the New American Standard is translated as an adjective when in the Greek it's an adverb. And that makes a tremendous difference. And it changes the whole understanding of the passage. So we have to look at the, each passage, and that's what I do. I study everything in the original Greek or Hebrew and why I took four years of Hebrew and four years of Greek in seminary so that I could understand the Scripture in the original language. Point number four. We talk about the... <clears throat> Historical grammatical principle, the grammar relates in the sense that grammar or syntax, which is the arrangement of words and their relationship to one another. Grammar or syntax studies the relationships between words and clauses to display the author's emphases and to bring out various nuances and shades of meaning. In English, for example, the simple past may translate either the Greek aorist tense, we don't have an aorist tense in English, now, this is important because we're going to come back and apply this in a few minutes. In English, the simple past may translate either the Greek aorist tense or the Greek imperfect tense. Now, the Greek aorist tense is used to describe an event in past time. It just summarizes that this happened, this was an event, it occurred. Past time. The imperfect tense explains something as continual action in past time. Now, that's going to be important, and we'll see an illustration of that in this passage. So you have to look at the grammar and the syntax in order to understand the author's intended meaning. Point five. The historical context is vital, for the Bible was written over a period of 2,000 years in places as diverse as Egypt, Babylon, Israel, Greece, Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, and Italy. And it was written under a variety of different governments and in different cultural contexts. All of these things affect the author's individual style, the literary form, whether it's hymnotic literature like in the Psalms, wisdom literature like in Proverbs, epistolary literature like Paul's epistles to Romans or Galatians, and all of that will affect the way the author conveys his meaning. 
Remember, the Bible must always be interpreted in the time in which it was written. So attention to the historical context is vital. And the word that we use to describe that is isagogics. I-S-A-G-O-G-I-C-S. Isagogics. Historical context. The Bible must always be interpreted in the time in which it was written. Point six. The literary context must not be ignored. We must ask, what kind of literature is this? Wisdom literature like Proverbs? Hymnic poetry like Psalms? An evangelistic tract like the Gospel of John? What kind of literature is this? Is it a personal letter? Is it history? Does the author's style include the use of imagery and metaphor, and how does he use them? Remember, every text has a context, and a text without a context is a pretext. And that's how most people want to interpret the Bible. They go open it up, close their eyes, run their finger down, hit a verse, and then read it, totally divorced from the context, and then try to interpret it with no understanding of the historical background, no understanding of the thematic flow of that of the passage, what the scripture is arguing or anything else. They just take that little section out and then impose their meaning on it. <clears throat> Point number seven. This is the key principle of hermeneutics. If you want to understand any kind of interpretation, this is what you remember. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. Take it in its literal sense unless there's some reason not to. Unless there's something in the context, something in the type of literature that suggests something different. But don't just say, well, I don't like what that says literally, so let's impose some other meaning. Let's try to find the hidden meaning of the text. Scripture must always be interpreted in a plain, normal sense. The issue is not what it means to you, but what it meant to the author and what the author was trying to communicate. Once the ground of meaning shifts from the author to the reader, then the text can mean anything, and once something can mean anything, then it means nothing. Point number eight. The literal interpretation of the Scripture does not exclude... This is where people get confused. They think literal means wooden. But no, the literal interpretation of Scripture does not exclude the use of imagery or figures of speech. The Bible is rich with imagery. It's in profound literature. uses all kinds of imagery. But these are clearly indicated by the context and general rules of grammar and literature. You don't have to read it into the text. Point number nine. Some types of figures of speech that are common are simile and metaphor. Simile always uses the word like or as. He is like a tree. It is white as snow. It shows stated comparison. But a metaphor is a little more sophisticated and it's unstated comparison. You are snow. Just states it. And then you have to think a little bit, okay, what are the characteristics of snow? 
And what are the, your characteristics and what's the commonality here? So metaphor is unstated comparison. Now that takes us to point number 10. The Apostle John particularly informs us of numerous metaphors which our Lord used to teach things about his person. So John uses, he's rich in metaphor. And the Lord uses them in a little more sophisticated manner in what was called by the Jews a mashal, M-A-S-H-A-L. A mashal was a hidden type of communication that was a little more sophisticated. Remember, the Lord liked to, to confound the self-righteous religious crowd. So he didn't just come right out and say it clearly sometimes. He, he used a mashal, and there's many different ones in the Gospel of John. But he uses a lot of metaphor too. For example, Jesus, in a metaphor you have a comparison between two objects. You have to find what do they have in common, what's the point of the analogy. Jesus himself was not a physical light bearer. Light did not emanate from him. When he walked down the street, he didn't have a glow. He wasn't a physical source of illumination. And yet Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He didn't glow. He was talking about a role that he fulfilled in illuminating the world as far as truth was concerned. I am the light of the world. He is, he who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus was not a gate, a hatch, or a portal. But he uses the imagery of a door as an analogy to teach that he is the only entry point into heaven. John 10.9, he says, I am the door. Now, he was not a literal door with hinges and a doorknob. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture just to make sure people didn't miss the point. In John 14.6, he said it more clearly. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, period. No exception. He claims exclusivity. Furthermore, Jesus was the son of a carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter, and in that culture, he would have been brought up and trained to follow in his father's footsteps as a carpenter. He did not tend sheep out in the field. His father... To our knowledge, Jesus never went out into the fields and took care of a flock of sheep. And yet Jesus says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, it's a metaphor. He is not taught, saying that he is a literal shepherd, but he is saying I fulfill roles like a shepherd toward my people. So when Jesus says in John chapter 5, or John chapter 6, I am the bread of life, he does not mean that he was physical bread or the source of physical nourishment, or that he was to be physically, literally eaten, he is simply making an analogy that he is the source of life and eternal life. This brings us to point number 11. The physical act of eating bread and of drinking wine, as a matter of fact, is used as a metaphor throughout the Scriptures. Eating manna in the Old Testament was a physical act, but it had spiritual significance according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It showed grace orientation, that you were accepting God's provision for you. 
That's what it pictures. The picture of eating is I accept that as true. That is mine. I'm assimilating it. I'm accepting it. I'm believing it. Eating shows that a person takes something and accepts it and makes it their own. In Proverbs 9.5, we have the anthropomorphism. That's when you take an abstract idea and picture it as a person. We have the anthropomorphism of wisdom. Wisdom is pictured as a person, and wisdom says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. It's a metaphor. Come, make me, wisdom, part of your life. That's the thrust. That's what the metaphor of eating and drinking means. It means accept me. We have another illustration of this in Jeremiah 15:6. Jeremiah says, Thy words, O God, thy words were found, and I ate them. Do you think he found a scroll, got out his fork and knife, started cutting it up? No. He says, I found your words and I ate them. In other words, I learned your word and I believed it, I accepted it, I assimilated it, I made it my own. Thy words were found and I ate them, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by thy name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. Furthermore, the rabbis used eating and drinking as metaphors for accepting or believing something. Now listen to what Jesus says in John 6.48. He said, I am the bread of life. It's a metaphor. I am the source of life. I am nourishment. Verse 49, the comparison, the analogy, this is all a throwback. Say, you, your generation right now, you're making the same mistake of the Exodus generation. You're looking for physical provision and you're rejecting the spiritual provision. You're looking, you're not looking past the end of your nose and you're rejecting doctrine as the ultimate reality in life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. And then he says in verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven from the source of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Now, what does he mean by eating of the bread? He means believing. Compare these verses. Look at John 6, 47. He states it clearly. See, the Bible must always interpret itself. John 6, 47, he states it clearly. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. John 6.51, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So in verse 47, the condition for eternal life is belief. In verse 51, he is speaking poetically and figuratively, and he says, if you want to live forever, you must eat the bread. The bread is my flesh. My flesh is what I give for the world. He's talking about substitutionary atonement. See, what happened on the cross, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, God the Father poured out upon Him all the sins of humanity. For all humanity, past, present, and future. All the sins of Adolf Hitler. All the sins of the Ayatollah Khomeini. All the sins of Saddam Hussein. All of your sins. Every single sin, past, present, and future, the sins that you are ashamed of, the sins that you reject, the sins that you don't want to admit, the sins that you've forgotten about, every one of them, the sins that you're going to commit that will shock you in the future, they're paid for. Jesus Christ paid the penalty. When He died, He said, to tell us die. It is finished. Paid in full. 
There's nothing more that can be added to this. I have done it all. If you add to it, you will destroy it. Now, listen to what Jesus says in John 6.51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. We need to look at a minute at a key word here. Came down. In the Greek, this is the aorist active participle of the Greek word kata bino. Looks like this. In the Greek, K-A-T-A-B-A-I-N-O. Kata bino means to come down, but the significance here is that it is in the aorist tense. Aorist tense is past time. And it refers to an event. Remember I said this all already, that Eris is past time, event, point in time almost. The imperfect tense is continuous action in past time. And a present tense can refer to continuous action in present time. Now, the reason I make this point is because it's very important to understand the grammar here, the historical grammatical method of interpretation, in order to see what Jesus is saying. The participle means that the action precedes the action of the main verb, and that this is referring to an event in history. When did Jesus come down? Approximately 32 years before this. He came down in the Incarnation. It is a past time. It was a one-time event. It was not a continuous event. Then Jesus says, if anyone, and he uses a third-class condition, which means maybe you will and maybe you won't. It's up to your volition. You can accept it or you can reject it. You can eat or you cannot eat. But it's your decision and you will suffer the consequences, whatever they may be. If anyone eats, and here we have an aorist active subjunctive, of estheo. This is the Greek word estheo, E-S-T-H-I-O, and it means to eat, just to eat. Nothing difficult about it, but it's in the aorist tense. What, aorist, what did I just say? This is so important. Aorist tense is one-time action in past time. It's an event. It's not a process. See, what happens, people come to this passage, they think because it's talking about eating my body and drinking the blood, That's talking about the Lord's table, but it's not. Number one, the Lord's table is not inaugurated for another year. Number two, when he does inaugurate the Lord's table, he says, do this continually in remembrance of me. Present tense action, continuous action. But here he says, the person that eats, aorist, event. It's talking about salvation here. It's talking about eating in terms of accepting or believing. If anyone eats of this bread, and then we have a present tense. Then he shifts tense. If anyone eats one time, that's all you need to do, that's God's plan of salvation, phase one, you come to the cross, you accept it or you reject it. If you accept it in a nanosecond, in that instant in time, you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved, not because of what you have done, but because Christ paid the penalty for your sins, and then you enter into the spiritual life. It just, it's a one-time event. That's the aorist tense. And then he says, if you eat, you will live. Present tense. Continuous action. If you take it, you will live continually. You will live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is 
my flesh. And then verse 53, Jesus says, Therefore to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat, aorist tense, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now, this, he's just pushing the point. He is pushing their buttons to the maximum. Because, you know, a lot of people want to take this many different ways, but he's talking metaphorically because, first of all, if you took it literally, he'd be espousing cannibalism, number one. And number two, remember the Old Testament? The Jews should be thinking in terms of Scripture, but see, they've rejected Scripture. They're operating on their human viewpoint legalism and religion. They're rejecting the Old Testament. The Old Testament says in Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement by reason of the life. And in the Mosaic law, they were forbidden to eat meat that had the blood in it. They had all these rituals to drain all the blood out of meat. You couldn't drink blood. You couldn't eat blood. That's what the Gentile nations did. You couldn't eat raw meat. You couldn't have steak tartare. You couldn't have a good raw fillet, a good rare fillet, which is just how I like it. You couldn't do that. It was forbidden under the Mosaic law. Couldn't have any blood showing up on your plate. And so when Jesus says, you have to drink my blood, he was pushing their buttons and they reacted and bounced off the walls. They took him literally. They thought he was actually talking about literally eating his flesh. Now, Jesus has been doing this. Remember he says, if you destroy the temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And they thought he was talking about the literal physical temple. And then when he came to the woman at the well, he said, if you drink of my water... You will never thirst again. And she's thinking physically. He's talking about literal water. You know, and he's using these metaphors to talk about spiritual truth. It's called a mashal. And he's veiling it, but then he'll come out and he'll state it clearly to those who are responsive, to those who are positive. But to those who are negative, he's not going to make it any more clear. And they're just bouncing off the walls. And he goes on in verse 54, he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has... Once again, we see the difference. He keeps emphasizing it. It's a one-time event and you have continuous possession of eternal life. And I will, it's a promise you can count on because he's omnipotent. He is the undiminished deity. I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my, true food, and my blood is true drink. True drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides. Fellowship. Eternal relationship with God. It's the Greek word minnow abides in me and I in him. So we close with the question, what does it take to be a Christian? The key word is believe. When the Apostle Paul was asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? He didn't say believe and go to church. Believe and participate in ritual. Believe and be good. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ And you will be saved. Now let me make this really clear. You'll always get in discussions with folks who just think they are trusting Christ alone for salvation. And this will clarify it. This will pull back the veil. And they'll probably never talk to you again. But this will make it clear. You ask this question. If I, at this moment, trust Jesus Christ alone for my salvation, and I believe what the Bible says, that He died on the cross for my sins. If I go out, and I go buy a Tech 9, and I go down to the local elementary school, 
and walk into a kindergarten class and take out 25 kindergartners and then shoot myself in the mouth, will I go to heaven? Jesus said, I paid for every single sin in full. You see, Adam's sin of eating a piece of fruit was not mass murder. It was not genocide. It was not adultery. It was eating a piece of fruit and it plunged the entire human race into spiritual death and eternal condemnation. What matters is the righteousness of God and whether it's some weak little white sin like telling a little white lie or whether it's something heinous, they both violate the perfect standard of God. So the issue isn't the degree of sin. The issue is that all sin separates us from God, whether it's a little bit or a lot, whether it's, in our opinion, a big sin or a small sin, sin destroys the relationship. And Christ paid for every sin, the big sins, the bad sins, the little sins, the heinous sins, the shocking sins. They're all paid for completely by Christ on the cross. So the issue isn't, what have you done wrong? The issue isn't, how bad have you been? The issue isn't how big a failure you were. The issue is simply, are you willing to accept the free gift? See, the Scripture makes it so clear. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Scripture says, he who believes on the Son is not condemned. He doesn't say, he who believes and and avoid certain sins. It says, He who believes, period. He who believes on the Son is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already. Why? Because of the sin he committed? No. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He has rejected the grace provision. God gives you the best Christmas present you ever had in your life. And if you reject that, God says, then you're going to die without perfect righteousness. And I can't have a relationship with somebody who doesn't have perfect righteousness. And if you accept Christ, I will give you perfect righteousness. Positionally. You're still going to have a sin nature. You're still going to sin. But I will forgive you. It's all wiped clear. And you'll have an eternal relationship. That's grace. That's what grace means. It's free. It's undeserved. We don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we've had to look at Your Word, to realize how important it is to have our relationship right with You, to clearly understand the spiritual issue of salvation, that Jesus Christ paid the price in full. And so the issue now is whether or not we accept that on our behalf or not. Scriptures are clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without hope, without faith, without eternal life, that they would take the opportunity right now to pray to you in the silence of their own soul, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's all that's necessary. If you trust Christ, then you're in. If not, you're out. The Bible makes it very clear Jesus did it all. We don't have to do anything. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the importance of these things, and we pray for our nation.
for the leadership of our nation. We pray for wisdom, and we pray that there might be a return to biblical values and biblical understanding in this country, for only then can we have that certainty, that foundation, that stability that gives us a real understanding of what true freedom is and what true slavery is so that we may not confuse the two and enslave ourselves once again to the tyranny of bad laws and bad government. But above all, Father, the only solution is the spiritual solution which you provided through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.